0: We're always trying to resist chaotic forces, which constantly seek to upend our lives. And level two, the level two situation is a good example of that. But there are many others. Um, you know, the share market crashing, the property corrections, uh, car crashes that can happen, uh, climate change, criminal activity in the neighbourhood, or or simply growing old. When our children were teenagers, the um, the biggest source of chaos. Uh, was 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 them and their activity, I must say. But in order to mitigate or remove these forces, we, we do lots of things, don't we? We take out insurance policies, we develop health and safety plans, uh, belong to neighbourhood watch groups, or attend defensive driving courses. Uh, you could almost describe life as a constant process of trying to prevent uh, something chaotic from happening to us. Do you know, I sometimes hear people refer to their faith in God uh, as if it were but one component of their safety net. Um, faith is imagined as a means of, of coping with the storms of life, providing a safe and happy haven within which to live, as if the main purpose of faith was to help us survive and get through. And although that's at least partly true, today's gospel reading uh, offers a deeper response. You see, the chief disciple Peter clearly believed in Jesus, but he wanted to confine him to a certain role, uh, perhaps to be a kind of chaplain to the group, if you will. And so when Jesus said that he must undergo great, great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, Peter took him aside and said, Lord, all this talk of suffering is so unpleasant. Uh, it really won't do for you to talk in this way. Um, this is not at all what I had in mind for a happy little group. Talk of death, goodness me, Lord. That's simply not how we win friends and influence people. Now, is it? Peter may almost have sounded like the civil servant, Sir Humphrey Appleby, and yes, minister, don't you think? Um, you see, Peter had just made his famous profession of faith a few verses before. You are the Messiah, he declared. Peter recognised the true identity of Jesus. In fact, Mark's gospel is intriguing because right at the very beginning, the reader, that is you and I, are let into this great secret. In Mark 1 verse 1, it says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the reader knows who Jesus is, but the disciples in the crowd, they are left um, hanging and they're not quite sure. But as the gospel unfolds, they become clearer and clearer about who Jesus was. It's only after he heals people, calms the storm, feeds the multitude, forgives sin, that the disciples begin to recognize that they are in the company of someone extraordinary. What is clear to the reader from the get-go was only a growing awareness for the disciples. And this growing awareness is crystallized When Jesus asked the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah. Wow, Peter gets it. He's the first to articulate it, and he's right on the money. Or is he? Let me put it this way. When Peter makes his great confession of faith, he has in mind that Jesus, God's anointed one, will somehow or other go to Jerusalem and be recognized by all as the divine Son of God, Jesus will be glorified. Jesus will rule in power. Jesus will triumph. And the disciples will have senior cabinet positions, to use another image from Yes Minister. In Peter's mind, there is a straight line between who Jesus is and redemption. Between Jesus' identity as the Son of God and overcoming the chaotic forces that beset Israel at that time. In Peter's mind, because Jesus is the Messiah, he cannot possibly suffer and die. After all, the Messiah should be able to avoid suffering and death, should he not? But Peter was in for a shocking surprise. It says that Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Imagine that little scene in your mind's eye for a moment. Both verbs, to take and to rebuke, imply superiority and authority over someone else. Peter wanted to be Jesus' protector and patron, to dictate to him the kind of Messiah he was to be. But Jesus turned on his heel, looking at all the disciples and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for well, you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Peter, the unofficial leader of the group, Peter, who had correctly named Jesus as the Messiah, was given an unprecedented dressing down, a public dressing down, and even called Satan. And this really is a ring of truth in the gospel accounts that Peter, who became, of course, the leader of the Christian movement, uh, this is retained in the record that he was called Satan by Jesus because of this gross misunderstanding. Now, this is a reference, the word Satan here, is a reference to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness when the evil one had tried to divert and deflect Jesus away from his mission by inviting him to take, instead of going through all this suffering and unpleasantness, a straight line to glory without facing suffering and death. And it turns out that Peter's rebuke of Jesus is depicted as simply one more attempt by Satan to deflect Jesus away from the cross. Peter has inadvertently become a spokesman of the evil one. So, what about us? We're disciples, are we not? Uh, We follow Jesus, do we not? We say Sunday by Sunday with, with Peter, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Not exactly in those words, but more or less. But do we want Jesus to simply be the means of our happiness? To be the one who deals with the chaos in our lives? To help us in the way we demand? To be helped? Do we want Jesus to take us in a straight line from our problems and chaos to a happy and comfortable life? Are we in danger of wanting Jesus on our own terms? Because Jesus pushes back firmly and rebukes Peter, Get behind me, Satan. The verbs to get behind in verse 33 and then to follow in verse 34 are used of disciples, those who follow. Peter must come behind Jesus, after him. Jesus will not be patronized. Peter must learn to be a disciple. So the obvious question is, what then is the shape of a disciple's life? If Jesus is not there to do our bidding, but to to be our Lord, what demands does he then place upon us well the simple answer is that the life of the, of the disciple must resemble the life of Jesus. Um, verse 34 says if you want to become my followers a disciple in other words, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me that's what Jesus did that's what he's asking dis- the disciples to do as Jesus goes so goes the disciples as Jesus sought to obey the will of God, over and above his own will, so the disciples follow Christ in costly obedience. And note that it doesn't say the disciple must deny themselves something. Often we think uh, of that as if to be a Christian you must live an ascetic life, a life where we sell our possessions or sort of uh, pare our lives down to a bare minimum. We deny ourselves things. No, it actually says that we deny Self, which means, of course, that we want to please God and not ourselves, which may or may not involve giving up material goods. It may indeed involve that, but that's not the main point being made. We deny ourselves the ownership, the final word, the sovereignty over our own lives. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. And the other thing to note in verse 36, where it says, or what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? To, to be a disciple is to stop grasping after life, to stop fretting about our lives, to stop bolstering and buttressing our lives in various ways. Because we in the West uh, live with the illusion that we can possess our lives that we own our lives, that Jesus said to those who would follow him, you may gain the whole world, but paradoxically lose your life because it is in God that the true measure of our lives is to be found, not in our possessions, not in our autonomy, not in our success, but in God. One of the great privileges of ministry is that you get to know people and all the ups and downs of life. The joys, the sorrows. And I know that many experience sudden loss or gradual decline or the pain of separation or the ache of our human brokenness in whatever form that manifests itself. But the gospel reading today teaches that our truest identity comes not in moving. to the the solution or the surgical removal of our problems in a straight line, but by following after Jesus wherever he may lead. We can never find our true selves if we hold on to our rights and our desires too tightly. Famous German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, and excuse the non-inclusive language, When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. In an age of self-fulfillment and self-actualization, this is a deeply puzzling quote, but has never been more true. So the answer to the question, who is Jesus, turns out to be related to the other question, who am I? If Jesus is Lord then my identity is tightly bound to him. Amen.